Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is David Sachs. David is co-founder and partner at Craft Ventures, one of the foremost SaaS VCs. He's also the former COO of PayPal and the co-founder and CEO of Yammer, which is sold to Microsoft for $1.2 billion. He's an investor in over 20 unicorns, including Airbnb, Facebook, Palantir, Uber, and SpaceX. On top of that, he's found time to co-host one of the most popular tech podcasts in the world. David, welcome to World of DAS. Good to be here. Thanks, Warren. Now, these tech layoffs can create these heat contractions, which then yields to more layoffs, which is a really bad spiral. How do you see the current time in SaaS playing out? I pointed out that vicious cycle. We saw that, I think it was in Q3, Salesforce, which is the bellwether of SaaS. It's one of the best-run SaaS companies. They reported a two-thirds reduction in net new ARR for the quarter. So that was a real signal about what's happening in SaaS. We're seeing a slowdown across the board. I predicted at that time that you would see layoffs on the heels of that because if your net new ARR goes down by two thirds, but you're still spending the same amount of money on sales and marketing, it wrecks your unit economics. Your LTVs go down dramatically, essentially. You're spending the same amount of money to get one third as many customers. So your CAC, your customer acquisition cost is basically triples. And you saw that their CAC payback, which is the amount of time it takes to earn back the acquisition cost in a customer, went from somewhere in the two to three year range to like 12 years. Wow. So it became pretty clear that they were going to have to make adjustments in their sales and marketing spend. Otherwise, again, their union economics would be wrecked. You saw a few weeks ago they did, I think it was like a layoff of like 7,000 people. So I think you're seeing that across the board. Every company's dealing with that. But the downstream effect of that is that if you think about all Salesforce's vendors now, they're going to be spending less money with them. For one thing, when Salesforce buys software from other companies, there's just 7,000 fewer seats. So like you mentioned, you have this phenomenon of seat contraction. And for the last decade or so, a huge tailwind at the back of software companies has been seat expansion, meaning that On January 1st, the beginning of every year, you would typically start with 120% of last year's revenue just from your existing customers because those customers were growing and buying more seats from you. And I think now we're in a period where the number of seats is either going to freeze or go down. And so you could be in a world in which, instead of starting with 120% of last year's number, you start with 80 or 90% of last year's number. And then on top of that, new demand is going down because companies are just getting much more conservative about what they're spending money on. They're sharpening their pencils. So you're seeing a reduction in new customers. And then the final third negative thing that's happening right now is I think you're going to see elevated logo churn over the next couple of years, that more and more companies are going to go out of business because it's a much tougher fundraising environment. So you add those three things together, which is slow down a new business, seat contraction, and then logo churn. And I think we're in for a pretty tough year or two for SaaS companies. And that's why I've been really urging them to tighten their belts and get ahead of this and be much more conservative in their planning. Don't go into the year with a burn multiple of two. The burn multiple is a metric I've come up with, which basically describes the multiple of spending or burn to the net new ARR you intend to generate. So a lot of companies are going into the year with two, but that means that if they miss on new ARR or their turn is higher, the burn multiple is three, four or higher. I've urged them to get really lean, go in with a plan with a burn multiple that if you miss, you still have some cushion. I think it's going to be a tough time. Partially, this is because a lot of these 
venture-funded SaaS companies were selling to technology companies, even a lot of other venture-funded SaaS companies. So you have this pernicious cycle that's happening. How does it ultimately play out then? Is it just 2023, we're in for a very, very tough year and then maybe starts to work itself out in 2024? I think we're probably out of it by mid-24 is the base case. I think it's a one to two-year reset and then things start growing again. I think if you're a SaaS company, you really just want to prioritize survival during this period. Growth is always nice, don't get me wrong, but I would rather be a little more conservative on growth and guarantee survival than trying to juice growth and extra whatever, 10, 20, 30%, but risk the fate of your company. Think about it this way. It's, instead of having tailwinds, you've got very strong headwinds over the next couple of years. And if you try to maintain your speed with intense headwinds, think about it like a plane, you're going to burn an incredible amount of fuel. Or you can just accept the fact that you're going into intense headwinds, slow down your speed, accept the lower speed, and just burn a lot less fuel and conserve. Because look, the demand does not exist in the market anyway. So when we come out of this period and we start having tailwinds again instead of headwinds, then you pour on the gas and you can start to fly faster. A lot of these SaaS companies raised in maybe 2021, a lot of them are sitting on a lot of cash. If they do have low burns, do you think there will be opportunities for them in 2023 or early 2024 to make very creative acquisitions or other things they can be doing with this cash? Definitely. But what I've seen is that they're not sitting on it, they're spending it. One of the problems is that the free availability of capital, companies were able to raise these huge rounds at really high valuations during the bubble, which is 2021, especially the second half of 21. And they raised that money from players who largely don't exist in the ecosystem anymore. You had these huge crossover funds who were basically public market investors who thought they were getting an arbitrage by going earlier into the private markets. Like Tiger Global. Tiger was like the main one. Tiger did maybe half the growth rounds that were happening in 2021. That was the experience in our portfolio. And they were doing these rounds very quickly. You just send them your numbers and they would give you an answer within a day or two. And the valuations they were paying were 2x what everyone else was paying. If you got like a term sheet from Tiger, it was literally double what the next traditional growth fund would do. And you didn't have to give up a board seat even usually. Yeah, the terms were very favorable. By the way, they were paying double market at that time and market was really high. Not to bash on them, they were taking their cues from the public markets. They were looking at the public markets for valuing high growth SaaS companies, which means a company growing, say, 40% year over year. They were valuing them at 30, 35 times ARR. So they were looking at the private markets and saying, here's a company growing 3x year over year. Why wouldn't I pay 100 times for that? Because in one year, they'll be at 35 times. Then the next year, they'll be at 10 times, and I'm going to make a huge arbitrage. So they were taking their cues from the public markets, and the public market was taking its cues from the Fed, which was engaged in a 10-year period of like zero interest rates. So everyone was thrown off by this. And now that same high-growth SaaS company might be trading at eight times, something like that. Literally a 75% reduction in the multiple. But in any event, we kind of got off on a tangent here. I think the point is just that these conditions don't exist anymore. And the founders, they got trained on those conditions. They thought that capital would always be this available, huge amounts of it at high valuations. And it's not, but they got addicted to that. And they started spending as if that capital is available. 
they've developed this habit of going out and raising around every year or 18 months. And so they thought that all this money they raised, they could just burn over the next 18 months. It'd be fine. But those companies are in for a rude awakening because if they can raise it all, it's going to be a valuation that might be 80% lower or multiples that are 80% lower. I hope they're preserving cash the way that you're saying, but I'm not seeing as much of that as there should be. Now, Anatoly, I haven't seen growth slow due to the layoffs. Are you seeing something similar where these companies might be laying off a fairly large percentage of the staff, but still it's hard to know, it's hard to run the experiment, what would have happened with or without layoffs, but it doesn't seem anecdotally to really affect the company's growth for most of these layoffs. I think you're right. I think these companies got really bloated and there's a lot of excess and entitlement that grew up in the system during this like zero interest rate period. And I think companies are finding that it doesn't impact their performance at all when they do these headcount reductions. They start to acquire a lot of people they didn't really need. You can see a scenario where they could even grow faster because having a lot of people is tough. You need a lot of systems. It's very hard to communicate. Often you can build faster with fewer people. You might be able to do some go-to-market things faster. So it could be a blessing to these companies as well. They're easier to manage when they're smaller. Another thing that happened, obviously, was remote work over the last couple of years, which maybe was a necessity in response to COVID. But I think what people are finding, if they're paying attention, is that there's a huge reduction in productivity when everybody's just working from home and they're all atomized and in different locations, as opposed to everyone being in the office and having a strong culture of being in one place or in a few hubs. So I think companies are starting to go back to work. And when they do that, they're realizing that there's a lot of people who are working from home who are basically on permanent vacation or semi-permanent vacation. So there's a lot of things they can do to get more efficient and discard, again, a lot of the practices that grew up in this very bubbly period. They didn't happen because they lead to more productivity. They happened because there was this intense war for talent fueled by the bubble and employees got to demand a lot of things that may not be in the interest of the company. The best companies get leverage over time with maybe defining that like the CACs decrease over time. But a lot of these companies, the CACs almost get worse over time. How do you know early on in a company which are the ones to invest in? How do you know that these companies are more likely to get leverage than others? Well, the thing I'm looking for at an early stage is whether the company has a differentiated distribution strategy. Have they figured out how they're going to market and are there channels through which they can go to market and pursue a strategy that's different from other companies? Because if all you're doing is defaulting to the same channels everyone else is using, like a Google AdWords strategy or something like that, you're just not going to be very cost efficient. So you need to have a way of attacking the market that is not so crowded, basically. If you have that, you have a way to get started. And I mean, that's what we're looking for in an early stage. There is a question down the road of when does this channel get saturated? Maybe it can only lead to so much growth. And then at that point, you need to find some more channels or your CAC does go up. But in any event, at the earliest stages, it's too hard to know when a particular distribution channel is going to peter out. And really what you're looking for is that there's at least one where the company has figured out how to go to market. When you look at your own investing mistakes, what do you wish you knew 15 years ago? (laughs) That November 2021 was going to be the absolute peak (laughs) of the market. We all got lulled into a false sense of security because of zero interest rates. I guess that's the thing that we sort of forgot about was that these macro conditions do matter. 
not on the level of any particular investment, but in terms of the asset class as a whole. And if you could have sold everything in November 21, then you clearly would have or distributed everything. We had a sense. I was saying around that time that I thought things were really bubbly and we were trying to distribute things to LPs. And I think we did a decent job. In hindsight, you wish you had taken your advice even more. I think the magnitude of the effect, even though we kind of understood it, was underestimated. Given where we're at now, is there anything the Fed can do to help us get to a softer landing or we just have to play this out over the next 18 months? Yeah, it's interesting. I think that what the market seems to be pricing in right now is that the Fed, well, we got a good inflation report last week. So the last inflation report, it was right on expectations and it shows that inflation is going down, which is the Fed's objective. And the reason inflation is going down is because the economy is worsening. So all the performance indicators of the economy, they're looking pretty bad. I think we are headed for a recession. I think we'll be in recession by the middle of the year. And the question is, what the Fed's going to do now. And I think if I were just to guess, I think it'll be one or two more quarter point increases. So as opposed to 75 basis point increases, I think they're going to peak at 5% or 5.5% or higher. I could be wrong about that. Do you see that just happening in Q1, Q2, 2023? And then even by the end of 2023, they start tapering it a bit and you assume the Fed's a political body. There's going to be a lot of pressure going into 2024 to lower interest rates. I think that's right. I think there'll be immense pressure to not be blamed for causing Biden to lose the election because they created such a severe recession that he was going to lose, especially if Trump's the Republican nominee. But regardless, my guess is they'll cut again in Q1 of 2024. It could be as soon as Q4. I mean, I guess it depends on how severe the recession is. But I think we're in this period of being whipsawed between inflation and recession and rate increases and rate decreases. I think the short answer to your question is, if the Fed stops raising now, I think we'll get a less severe recession and maybe a soft landing. I doubt they're going to do that. I think they're going to keep raising, but maybe in a more tepid way. You've met a lot of super successful people over the time. What do you think are the most common traits of super successful people? I basically think that in our world, there's two kinds of people. There's basically the creators and then there's the joiners. And I just think it's like two very fundamentally different personality types. The creators are the people who don't quite fit in to other people's structures and feel the need to create their own. And they see market opportunity that nobody else has been able to see. It's a more contrarian mindset. And then you've got people who are just fundamentally joiners and they need the structure. If you just give them a blank sheet of paper and tell them, go make a living, they won't know what to do. They need to join an existing organization and blueprint and they like the certainty and guardrails of having a track and being able to work their way up. Those types of people, because they're hired into a reality instead of creating their own reality, they tend to value things like credentials a lot and resume. Whereas the more founder personality doesn't really care about resume and credentials and those things are irrelevant to that person. In the environment of the 2018 to 2021, where there's obviously a lot of status to the creator, do you think a lot of joiners decided that they were creators? Our friend Kevin Hartz, this is a few years ago, he said that becoming a founder is like the new McKinsey, which is all these people thought that becoming a founder is the thing they had to do. The checkbox. It was the box they had to check. And 
the reason that was dangerous is not just because they may not be perfectly suited to it, but also because in their mind, failing was sort of acceptable because the objective was just to be the founder, check that box and YC company or something. Yeah, exactly. Go to YC. YC definitely helped a lot with this because it created the track. Made it easier. Yeah, all of a sudden being a founder was something that became a little more track. Now, to some extent, that's good because in like the late 90s, I wanted to become a founder, but I had no idea how to do it. So I ended up going to law school, which was a big waste of time until Peter Thiel recruited me to PayPal. So it's helpful to have some institutions, but things did become a little too tracked. And I hated this idea of get your first failure out of the way or whatever. In my view, failure is totally unacceptable. And we have a culture of forgiving failure, and that's good. I mean, one of the reasons why you get more risk-taking and entrepreneurial activity in the U.S., as opposed to, say, a place like Europe, is that failure is not something that's hung around your neck forever. You don't go to debtor's jail or whatever. But I think that's healthy for society as a whole. But I think in terms of the individual psychology of a founder, I think you should have like a burn the boats mentality and be very determined that you're going to be successful. Because creating a company is just so hard that if failure is an option for you, then it's just too tempting to take it. I think one of the common denominators of the whole PayPal mafia is just how phenomenally determined everybody was to make that company a success, no matter how much adversity there was. Yeah. If you look at the story, it was like failure, 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 failure. (laughs) There were a lot of pivots. And then once the right product found product market fit, there were also a ton of obstacles that should have killed the company, but we didn't let it happen. I kind of worry that the super tracked founder who is creating a company as a resume item just doesn't have that psychology. Over the last 20 years, what are the commonality thinkers the same and what has really changed quite marketably over that time? The thing that's changed is that the whole tech ecosystem has gotten a lot bigger. I mean, you remember the late 90s, early 2000s, the tech ecosystem was really concentrated around Stanford and it wasn't even the whole Bay Area. It was really the peninsula, maybe going down a San Jose for hardware. And then it just kept getting bigger and bigger. And so Silicon Valley spilled over and became Silicon Bay. You had it expand to San Francisco. You had it expand to the East Bay. Then it expanded to other cities. So it became more of a national story. And then globally as well. So just the continued growth of tech to being this very local thing, to being this national and global thing has just been the inexorable trend over the last 20 years. I think the thing that's still the same is the boom-bust cycle. The last year has really reminded us of this. We thought that the laws of the business cycle had been suspended because it seemed like we had been in a boom market for so long. I mean, really, since the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, it seemed like we've been on this upward trajectory since 2010, and, and it seemed like the business cycle had been suspended. But now we see that it's here. And when tech goes through a bust cycle, it's really intense. It is much worse than the rest of the economy. For us, it's an 80% contraction in valuations and with all the cascading layoffs. Whereas for the rest of the economy, a recession is negative 2%. I think a lot of the lessons that we learned in the dot-com crash are newly applicable now. And people have forgotten a lot of them. One of the weird things in this environment is while most of the industries in the US are very inflationary, if you run a local fast food restaurant, your labor costs have gone up quite a lot. Your costs of your ingredients have gone up quite a lot. For tech companies right now, most of their costs are extremely deflationary. Engineer salaries have gone down. 
especially when you consider stock compensation, the amount they're spending on software has gone down. If they're acquiring companies, well, that has been severely deflationary. How do you think they should be thinking about that essentially in a deflationary environment? Well, I think this is ironically a great time to be building a tech company or to be starting a tech company. If you're a founder who has a great idea and the right mentality, this is a great time to be starting because you're right, all of your costs are going to be lower. It's a lot easier to recruit. Besides the fact that it's less expensive, it's just easier to recruit. That's usually the big problem. Office space is almost free. And there's just a lot less noise. You're not going to have five other companies doing the exact same thing as you, creating a lot of confusion in the marketplace. Recessions are a great time to be building companies, assuming your idea is good enough to get funded, because the one thing that does get harder is fundraising. But if you can manage that and then operate in a really lean way, it can be a good time to build a company. PayPal was started before the dot-com crash, but it was principally grown after the dot-com crash. My company, Yamrochi, sold to Microsoft in 2012, was founded in 2008, just before the financial crisis, but it was almost entirely grown in the wake of the financial crisis. So those can be good times to build a company. And I think from an investor standpoint, it's a better time because, again, there's less noise for us to sift through and the founders are much more serious about it because the founders who are super risk averse just won't do it. They're going to cling to the job security of working at a big company now, which from my standpoint is just fine. I want to work with the founders who feel compelled to do it from something deep inside as opposed to just wanting to do it. a check or something. Yeah, just because everyone else is doing it. It seems like the good thing to do. I think this is a good time to be building and creating companies. The only reason it's not is because founders can't wrap their head around the legacy issues. So in other words, they did that big round in 2021 and they still have that burn rate and they still think they need all these people and they just can't adjust to the new reality. And if they just could, then they'd be in great shape, but they can't. That's the downside. And I think there's so many companies which their cap table is all screwed up because they raise money at a valuation that just can't be justified now, instead of just doing a one-time reset to something sensible, and then maybe topping off the employee stock options to compensate them for that, getting it over and done with, they're going to try and cling to this old valuation. They're going to end up with like a lot of structure in their cap table and stuff like that. Because it's like a human condition to cling to that story. If you were worth, in your head, $100 million, you don't want to be now of a sudden worth 20 or something. One of the best companies in our portfolio, I won't say which one, it's a SaaS company that's doing very well, selling software to enterprises and doing huge contract values. They raised, I think the absolute peak of the market is around November of 2021. They had about 12 million of ARR at that time, and they raised around at 100 times ARR, so 1.2 billion. It's big valuation, especially by today's standards, but at the time, that kind of stuff was happening. The company has done really well, I think it's around 30 million of ARR now. So the valuation is more like 40 times. The problem is even 40 times in this environment is a lot. The valuation probably should be somewhere in the 10 to 20 times range. That's a lot for a founder to get their head wrapped around. You've done everything right. Your company is growing really well and is one of the more successful names in our portfolio, but the valuation is still probably two-thirds less, even now, than what you raised at, even though you've tripled. So knowing that, if you're the founder, what do you do about that? I tend to think the first thing you should do is just operate super efficiently because 
you're just never able to raise capital on terms that were so great and so lopsided towards founders as they were in November 2021. The first thing you should do is really conserve that cash. Think about that cash as if it's coming out of your next round, not the previous round. This is a mistake that founders make is, well, that round was only a 10% dilution round. Yeah, but if you were to raise that round today, it'd be like a 50% dilution round. So think about that cash that way, assuming you could even raise it, which you might not be able to. So if you think about the cash saving you dilution in the next round, you would treat it much more dearly than when it was just being given away in 2021. I'm sure certain companies in your portfolio, they have less than a year's cash. And some companies in your portfolio have like five years of cash or something. And in your head, do you have like a sense of this is the minimum number of months you should have in the bank right now? Or I want them to have two years in the bank, at least from now. We started doing briefings with our portfolio companies. We did one in February of last year, and we did another one in May. And the message was the same, which is there's been a regime change in the capital markets. I think everyone now knows this, but we were trying to get the message to them earlier. I want them to have at least two years of runway. I think that's what's necessary to get through this recession. The problem is that there's a couple of mistakes, I think, that they make in terms of runway. One is just the way they calculate runway. I have a very simple way of calculating, which is I take the amount of cash you have in the bank and divide the most current month's burn, and that tells me how much runway you have. And what I see is these overly elaborate ways of calculating runway, which depend on forecasts. Well, we're going to be generating all this incremental revenue over the next year, and so therefore, that's going to be an offset to the burn. And the problem with basing runway on a forecast like that is that that revenue might not materialize. And so what's going to happen is you're hit with a double whammy of missing your numbers and running out of money at the same time. And so you're unable to raise because you missed your numbers. And then you don't have an accurate picture of your runway. And those companies are the ones that just hit a wall and die. So I like to have a very simple conservative way of measuring runway. I think the other mistake that companies make with respect to the runway is they think that they don't need to fundraise until they're out of runway. And that's not true. Yeah, and this environment could be a year before they have to start. Yeah. So if you have two years of runway, that's not two years to operate your business and improve your metrics until you have to fundraise. It might be one year. It might be more like five quarters. The way to explain this concept to founders is you work backwards from the cash out date, which is I've been on boards before that have three months of cash left. And I can tell you, basically at that point, you're in wind down mode. What happens when you have three months of cash left is the lawyers all of a sudden come in, they tell you about all these liabilities that you didn't know you had. You got to pay your employees. and You got to pay your employees or whatever. And some of these statues have personal liability to the directors. And everybody's just like, how do we wrap this up elegantly without creating liability? <laughs> so you're like dead at three months. So then six months is really your last chance to raise where people are not in wind down mode. And the problem with raising at six months before cash out is that if you can do it at all, your back's against the wall and you're probably going to get really terrible terms. You have to take whatever you take. You take whatever you get. You're not going to be happy with it. So then you raise nine months before. And really, I would recommend a year before because if something goes wrong with the process, at least you have one or two quarters to revise your business and then raise again. Really, you're looking to raise nine to 12 months before your cash out date, which if you've got two years of money in the bank, means you're fundraising a year from now, which if what I'm telling you is correct, we're still in the midst of a recession. Not good. I mean, you really need more cash than you think you do. Now, a couple of policy questions. You've been 
somewhat critical of these very, very large internet companies, Apple, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and the power that they have. And they're essentially these uber regulators in tech. Is there anything we can be doing to create a more competitive ecosystem? There seems to be a growing bipartisan consensus that what I've called tech MAGA, like you said, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and Apple, they're too big and too powerful. I think there's some important differences in how people would approach the regulation. But I tend to think that the area we need to focus on is that the giant tech companies that control hugely powerful platforms, preventing them or limiting their ability to compete with downstream apps is really the key thing that you want the regulation to focus on. Because otherwise, what will happen is over time, they will just keep extracting and siphoning off more and more of the value capture from the downstream apps to the platform. I mean, we saw this dynamic with Microsoft in the 90s when it controlled the desktop operating system. It used that privileged position to gradually dominate every important category of application. So I think that over time, as our ecosystem, the internet ecosystem becomes more mature, all the value capture is going to go to the owners of the iOS and Android operating systems. And to a lesser extent, but similar, Amazon will start dominating more and more of these product verticals. Microsoft is a slightly different version of this, where this is more of like a bundling issue, where what they'll do is they'll take whatever the hot SaaS app is du jour in the given year, they'll just clone it and throw a crappy clone of it into their E5 bundle and give it away for free, thereby pulling the rug out from under that company. But then the next year, they'll just raise the price of their bundle. So it's similar. The point is just, if these companies are allowed to engage in practices like this, they will gradually extract all the value of the ecosystem. And I think from the point of view of having a healthy ecosystem where you actually get innovation, it's important not to let that happen. Because from the VC standpoint, if all the value captures ultimately go to the platform, why would you fund any of these applications? Even in the unlikely event that the startup proves out the value that they're trying to create, great, they'll succeed for a temporary period, and then that value will eventually be extracted by the platform. So I think that's the thing that regulators need to focus on. And unfortunately, I think they're like confused about this because Lena Khan, who runs was the FTC, she came in with this reputation of being very tough on big tech and wanting to look at being tougher on enforcing competition, but has gone about in this really weird way. So for example, they're basically litigating with Facebook trying to prevent acquisition of a VR game. I think Facebook's the wrong company to be going after. They're certainly not nearly as powerful as the other four. Yeah, let's go after the trillion dollar club. So they're not in that trillion dollar market cap club. So I just think that's an indication they're not as powerful. And VR is a space that's still so speculative, the market is punishing Facebook for pursuing it, getting in the way of some very speculative acquisition that may just help them prove out that VR is even a thing. VR is not a market that needs to be protected from monopolies. But you mentioned it is so bipartisan regulating tech, but it does seem like when governments do regulate tech, let's say GDPR, it actually strengthens the hands of these big companies rather than weakens the hands. Do you see it playing out in any way where it actually makes things more competitive? The dynamic you're talking about, regulatory capture is a problem across every industry, not just tech, which is that when the regulators go in to try and regulate the companies that have the lobbyists and the money to pay the lobbyists and make political contributions, and they have the trade associations or the big established players, 
and they end up helping to shape the regulations so it benefits them, and it really creates a barrier to entry for the startup that may not even exist yet, and so therefore is not represented in the process. I think it's a huge problem. It's a classic problem in public policy. I don't know how you solve it except to be really clear about what you're trying to achieve. And I think that what our elected leaders should be laser focused on is just this idea of anti-competitive practices by platforms trying to extract all the value of the downstream apps. That's the specific problem that they should be focused on. GDPR, things like that. There are user privacy issues that need to be addressed. It's not an antitrust issue. It's more about data protection issues. And I think there the key is just to figure out how to make them achieve the objective of privacy without creating really burdensome regulations. They can tend to be overly heavy-handed, and then that is much harder for startups to comply with than these big companies that have huge legal departments. Now, on the foreign policy side, the Warhawk wing does seem very bipartisan. Even the most progressive members of Congress, which have traditionally been very, very anti-war, have been lining up more on the favor of war. What do you think the phenomena is behind that? It's kind of disappointing. I mean, there is no more, let's call it, anti-war progressive left. You saw this really starkly when the Progressive Caucus recently released a letter to the Biden administration urging them to put diplomacy on a parallel track to funding Ukraine with virtually unlimited weapons and arms and aid. And they weren't saying, don't provide the weapons and the funding just also have a diplomatic track. And the reaction to that was so hysterical that every signer of the letter, except for one, ended up retracting the letter. This was before the midterms. If Biden wanted to break with the more progressive wing, there were probably a lot more politically savvy things he could have broken them with that would have helped them on the midterms. This is probably not one that was such a big election issue. So why was it that this was the issue that he really wanted to break with them on? I don't know if it was fully driven by the administration. It was also this media backlash. And the mainstream media has provided a very one-sided view of this war. And they're basically boosters for the super hawkish view of American foreign policy which the Biden administration is also pursuing. So there's just very little room for dissenting thought on these topics right now. There's a tremendous amount of conformity. It's way worse even than the Iraq war, which I remember from back in 2003, if you raised any objections or concerns to the Iraq war, you were immediately branded as being unpatriotic or even a traitor. Back in those days, I didn't know better. I supported the war because I thought the Bush-Cheney administration knew what they were talking about. I thought when they said that Saddam had WMD programs, they were telling the truth. And when they said that Saddam had links to al-Qaeda, I thought they were telling the truth. It all turned out to be lies. They basically lied us into that war, and it ended up being a costly occupation that didn't work. Since then, I've become much more skeptical of the claims of our foreign policy establishment, the hawkish wing, the sort of neocon wing that's on this crusade to convert every part of the globe into meddling in the internal affairs of these countries to convert them into a form of government that they like better. So they're still on that crusade now. This is a long rabbit hole we can go down. But I became skeptical as a result of seeing 20 years of failed interventions in the Middle East. I became much more skeptical of that interventionist foreign policy. But the conformity of thought around this is even starker today than it was in 2003 with the Iraq war. Again, you were called unpatriotic then if you questioned 
the U.S.'s invasion of Iraq. Today, you're called a Putin sympathizer or pro-Putin or whatever, a Putin apologist, which is another form of saying you're a traitor. If you merely want to put diplomacy on a parallel track here and have this war resolved through some sort of diplomatic settlement, and certainly if you raise any questions about how we got in this war, the role that NATO expansion played, for example, which played a very significant role, you're called all these names or whatever. One day we'll be able to talk about this stuff honestly, like we are about Iraq, but while it's going on, it's very hard to have an honest conversation about it. If you think of the expert class, you call them the foreign policy establishment, if you think of the expert class and other things, let's say the Fed or something, they got a lot of things wrong over the last 30 years, but maybe they got a lot of things right and we can quibble on it. It does seem more on the foreign policy establishment that most of the big things, maybe all the big things they got wrong. Why do they remain still so trusted to make these decisions? It's interesting because I think that what happens is that the American people just generally are not that focused on foreign policy until you get a foreign policy disaster. So when you have a war that goes badly, then the American people become pretty focused on it. Vietnam or even in Iraq, I think that the failure of the Iraq war, I think it was one of the major issues that allowed Trump to come out of nowhere and win the presidency as a total outsider. It certainly was the issue within the Republican Party that allowed him to shatter the Bush dynasty. It certainly allowed Barack Obama to win as well. That's right, yeah. He beat Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination on the basis that he had opposed the Iraq war and she had voted for it. So when you have a foreign policy disaster like that, then the American people focus on it. But short of that, they're more focused on domestic issues. And so therefore, the conduct of our foreign policy is really up to the foreign policy elite. The elite consists of a bunch of institutions around Washington, the so-called blob. It's the think tanks and it's the military industrial complex, the big defense contractors who are funding a lot of the think tanks. And there's kind of a revolving door of people who work in government and then go to the think tanks and then go to the defense contractors or their boards. It's a very cloistered, closed circle. The defense contractors are basically the retirement program for the Pentagon. I mean, if you're a general, you work up to how many stars you're going to get, you retire, you end up joining a bunch of defense contractor boards. This is the military industrial complex that Eisenhower warned us about. There's a strong ideological component to it, too. It's not just about the financial incentives. If you're somebody who goes to work in a think tank, you're a neocon or something, your ideology is probably going to be one of foreign intervention because what motivates you to want to devote your life to it anyway? You want to make the world a better place, and so you (laughs) want to intervene. You're more Wilsonian, I would presume. Yeah, it's self-selecting. Don't ask a barber if you need a haircut. The Upton Sinclair line, it's hard to get a person to understand something when their salary depends upon not understanding it. You go into the Foreign Service, you join the State Department, or you join one of these think tanks, you're geared towards foreign intervention and developing clients and the whole thing. There is this credentialism in the foreign policy, which does exist in many other areas, but maybe like other areas today, it seems like some of the foremost interesting thinkers who at least have been more correct over the last few years have been people who don't necessarily have these credentials. There are different kinds of credentials. The school of thought that's been the most correct about American foreign policy over the last, call it 25 years, is the realist school. I mean, just go back and look at it, look at their predictions. So the dean of the Realist School is Professor John Mearsheimer, University of Chicago professor of international relations. 
He predicted in the early 2000s that our policy of constructive engagement towards China would be a disaster. It wouldn't work. That instead of making them more like us, we would just make them rich and then they would seek to compete with us. He was right about that. He predicted that the Iraq war would be a fiasco. It would lead to a long, costly occupation, which is what it did, instead of being greeted as liberators. And then he predicted this Ukraine war back in 2015 and gave the foreign policy establishment a roadmap to avoid this war, and that they went in the completely opposite direction. This is one example. So the realist school, if you just look at track record, which I think we as investors are inclined to do, it's like, what's your track record? The realist schools, they're the most correct. And the neocons are the least correct. And then the liberal interventionists, which I would describe compared to the realists, for example, there's like minor differences with the neocons. They're almost as incorrect as the neocons. But they're the ones who basically run the foreign policy establishment. Again, I just think it comes back to these institutional incentives, which is if you're part of the blob, the military industrial complex, the foreign service, the state department, the think tanks, your incentive is to get involved, is to do things, not to be skeptical of foreign intervention. And imagine if you're a young aspiring player in this, whether you're an intellectual or you want to join the state department or something like that. I mean, how do you think you're going to be received when you're the one person in the room saying, guys, maybe there could be unintended consequences from our meddling? You're not going to be a team player. They're going to root you out. I think the foreign policy establishment is one of the most cloistered and prone to groupthink establishments that we have in America. And that's really saying something because there's a lot of groupthink and a lot of elite establishments. That is one of the most. And you look at the way that the realists generally are considered by people inside this establishment, it's like, whoa, it's like this deeply illegitimate and not respectable school of thought, even though they've been right about everything. A couple more questions. You've commented a lot about cancel culture. Do you think we're at peak cancel culture or do you think we're just getting started? There's been a major backlash and reaction to the cancellation tactics. So I tend to think the cancellation tactics probably peaked. I don't think the underlying ideology has changed at all. So you still have this underlying woke ideology, which uses these cancellation tactics. And that ideology is not going away. The adherents of it are going to fight to keep it. And in fact, they're systematically taking over every institution that matters from the very big to the very small to every local school board. I don't think the ideology is going anywhere. I think there's been some amount of backlash to the tactics. That might temper those tactics, but I'm not super optimistic. I'm a big fan of the All In podcast, and I think it just keeps getting better over time. Why do you think it's been so successful? I think it's the authenticity of four friends who are having conversations and debates as if they were sitting at a poker table, which was the original concept of the show. And it's very hard to get that type of honest, amicable debate. I remember when 20 years ago, when I would watch cable news, the sort of fixture of cable news were these debate shows. You'd have Crossfire or something. Crossfire, yeah. You have Pat Buchanan versus Michael Kinsley. Or if you want to go back, this is before my time. The original archetype was you'd have William F. Buckley versus Gore Vidal, or you'd have George Will versus Sam Donaldson. Every show was kind of a debate show. And you don't get that at all anymore. No, it was a debate show, but you could tell they liked each other, even though they came from very, very different views. They had respect for one another. George Will and Sam Donaldson, they respected one another, even if they might have disagreed on 
most things. Yeah, I don't think they were buddies. Rodal and William F. Buckley were definitely not buddies. Definitely not. But if you watch McLaughlin Group, I think that, I mean, Pat Buchanan and Laura Clift are not buddies, but I think they respect each other and it's amicable enough. I saw profiles of Pat Buchanan where Eleanor Clift would defend him as she may be repulsed by his views on certain things, but she defended him as a human being. This is a throwback to that, but I'd say even more so because we're all friends. Outside of politics, there's also like just this entertainment value of us busting chops and making fun of each other and that kind of thing. All right, this is great. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? (laughs) The one that I've critiqued is the whole do things that don't scale advice. Paul Graham writes a lot about it. I don't like that one because I think what happens is that the early practice of a startup become a little bit of a template for everything that happens later. And it becomes habitual, basically. The early practices and the culture that's set early on become a pattern that's very hard to break. And I tend to think that the whole purpose of software companies is to do things that do scale and try to do things in the most elegant, scalable way. So I don't like the idea of affirmatively trying to do things that don't scale. The example that was always given in support of this philosophy was the way that Airbnb got off the ground. Supposedly, there's this whole myth about taking the picture. That may be true. There's like a founding myth about they went to the Republican Democratic conventions that year and they did the cereal boxes or whatever with Obama O's and McCain Crunch or something like that. I personally find it unlikely that that was the reason why they were successful. But even if it's true, what I would say is that I think that marketplaces might be a very narrow exception where you need to somehow generate the initial liquidity on the marketplace. There's a huge chicken and egg problem with marketplaces where if there's no houses for rent in the market, then how's anyone going to rent one? And so generating the initial supply is something that has to be bootstrapped. Even there, there's a hack often to get a lot of supply on. And if you're Amazon, you just basically take all the books. Yeah, there may be way better, more scalable hacks. I mean, I think what Uber did to get the initial supply of drivers was just to go to the town car companies and sign them up. And you get like 20 to 30 cars at a time instead of the onesie, twosies. But eventually, once they had the supply, then they opened it up to everyone. If you're a marketplace, yeah, you may have to bootstrap your initial supply in non-scalable ways, but I still think it's better to find scalable ways of doing everything. That's one of the things I've critiqued, especially in the current environment. I think that people need to take another look at blitz scaling. the idea that everything's just a land grab and you need to grow as quickly as possible to grab it. I mean, that's certainly a philosophy that we practiced at PayPal back in the day. So I understand that philosophy, and I do think it's applicable to new markets where there's a huge network effect. And where there's a lot of competition and a lot of especially well-funded competition who's also going to be doing something similar. Reed's thesis that you want to be the first to scale, that's who's going to win. I think there's a lot of support for that, and it makes sense in a lot of cases. However, I think it doesn't make sense in a lot of cases, too. In SaaS, it's a little different. Well, boot scaling almost certainly you need a lot of cash. And so you have to have some sort of a surety that next year you can go raise the money if you're blitzscaling, I presume. And if you don't have that assurity, it's more difficult to do. Yeah, I think that's right. I also think that with SaaS companies in particular, it's so important to prove the unit economics and that the go-to-market model scales. 
So for example, we wouldn't fund a SaaS company. Let's say they were growing really fast, but then you look at their sales metrics and they've hired 10 times more salespeople than they need. And so the CAC doesn't make any sense. We just wouldn't fund that because we can't know whether the market adoption is a real reflection of product market fit or whether the company is just like pushing its product onto the market the way they make pate where they're like stuffing the goose. You don't want to invest where there's no market pull because, again, you could be buying growth in a way that is uneconomic and therefore not sustainable. And when you do try to rationalize the economics of the business, you all of a sudden find out that there's no demand for it because the whole thing was astroturf or artificially generated. In those cases, later, you'll probably see a lot of churn. So those are probably things that are much more likely to have high churn later on. Yeah, exactly. So at least for SaaS businesses, what I'd much rather see is a startup that takes time to get it right and really has their model dialed in. And then they grow very predictably from there. Ideally, you do the triple, triple, double, double or whatever, but we definitely want to see the growth, but it doesn't need to be 10 times. I think it was different in the days of consumer social networks where there was such an intense network effect that you really wanted to scale first. I would balance that today with the need to be economically efficient. Oh, this has been great. Well, thank you, David Sachs, for joining us on World of Das. I follow you at David Sachs on Twitter, and I definitely encourage our listeners to engage with you there. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Good to be with you, Arn. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. 